Let me read for us the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. I like John's account of the Christmas story. It's much shorter. And seemingly, at least in my mind, maybe a bit more theological, but uh, that kind of tickles my ear a little bit. Let's read 1 through 18. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I like John's emphaticness. I love it. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let's pray. Father, as we look at Your Word this morning, as we worship by seeking to know You more, Father, to learn You more this morning, to to give up control of our lives, at least our perception of control in our lives, and push that back towards You. And I pray that uh, that Your Word would would do what you've you have granted it the ability to do. It's through the powers of the Holy Spirit to sanctify our lives, to make us holy and blameless. Father, prepare us for all of eternity. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so to let the cat out of the bag, here's my goal this morning, right from the very beginning. My goal is, my proposition, if you will, is that we have hope in a future inheritance because in the word becoming flesh, we begin a journey of beholding his glory, receiving his grace, and knowing the Father, who is truly the inheritance himself. Let's say that one more time. We have hope in the future inheritance because of the Word becoming flesh, or because in the Word becoming flesh, 
we began our journey of beholding His glory, receiving His grace, and knowing the Father, the Father who is truly the inheritance Himself. I want to go back because I want to zero us in. I wanted to read all of, of those 18 verses to set a little bit of context here, although I'm really just going to preach on 14 through 18 this morning. So let's reread those verses. He says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus Christ, that is. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So hope. We're talking about hope this Christmas. Hope. Hope that is, sir, I want you to follow with me as we kind of think through hope here, and kind of set our minds around this idea of hope and what this passage has to speak to that topic. Hope that is certain. Hope that is consistent. Hope that endures. Hope that perseveres. Hope that will happen. And hope that you can hang your hat on cannot be hope in something fashioned or contrived by finite hands and finite minds. Hope in our ability to choose God. What certainty is there of that? Talked about that last week. What certainty is there that you would even continue choosing God? Again, I'm not going to take the time to explain those comments I preached on that last week. Hope in your ability to stand right before God. What certainty is that? That you, on your own, might stand right before God. Even if you could do enough, right, to be right before God. Even if you could do enough, what hope is that you would continue? That you could maintain that? Hope that what sits comfortably in your hands are gifts worthy enough to open the gates into God's presence. What hope is there in that? What, what, I mean, this is the question I have, the kind of a follow-up question to that is, what measuring stick have you that would grant you such certainty that that which you hold in your hands would measure up, be worthy enough to open the gates into God's presence? Now, here I'm just, just talking about, you know, eternal like hope as it relates to eternal things. Right? I'm afraid that many of us settle for hope in more temporal things. Hope that this job would give me what I need to be happy. Or hope that this family member might provide the happiness that I need. Or hope in this. I mean, there's so many different things. But the kind of a hope that we need, that we were built for, that we were created for, is hope from something beyond our 
world, something beyond the fashioning abilities of our hands, minds, and hearts. You see, that which we hope in is that which maintains our worship. What we hope in is that which maintains our worship. We will worship that which we place our hope in. If you don't believe me, look at what you place your hope in and how hard you fight to have your hope in that thing. If you find yourself fighting for your workplace or fighting for your job or a paycheck, that's probably because you place your hope in that paycheck. And the only one worthy of our worship is God. We know this. If you've been a part of the church any amount of time, you know that God is the only one worthy of our worship, and therefore the only one worthy of our hope is ultimately God. Nothing new there, nothing profound. The hope that we need, that we were created for, is hope ultimately in the Father. Which this brings us to the beauty of the Incarnation. This brings us to the beauty of Christmas. The only one worthy of our worship and able to give us hope came himself in the flesh to be our hope. Like what A.W. Pink says in his exposition on John 1. He says, the infinite became finite. The invisible became tangible. The transcendent became imminent. That which was far off drew nigh. That which was beyond the reach of the human mind became that which could be beholden within the realm of human life. Here, here we are permitted to see through a veil that which unveiled would have blinded us. See, for us to have hope realized for hope to become a realization subsequent to God's choosing those to which He would grant hope to, the only provision possible for us to see hope realized in our lives was for God Himself to be the hope. For God to be hope Himself. So according to His great plan, the Word became flesh the Father choosing the Son to be no longer hope only in the heavenly places, but now hope in the flesh, bringing hope to mankind, bringing hope to us. You see, if Christ would have remained in heaven, there would be no hope for you and I. But God, according to His mercy and His plan, sent His Son to become hope in the flesh. Not hope in the flesh, but he himself was hope in the flesh. See, in order for mankind to be gifted hope, our hope needed to die. The flesh needed to die. When Christ took on flesh, it was now possible for him to die. Understanding that any hope in a future life with the Father must be rooted in the past life of Christ in the flesh. Let me say that again. 
We need to understand that any hope in a future life with the Father must be rooted in the past life of Christ in the flesh. Our hope with a future life in the Father does not lie ultimately in what we do now. It lies ultimately in what Christ did then. Our hope had to be earned in the flesh so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So what happens? The Word became flesh. John tells us in verse 14, And the Word became flesh. He says, And dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, and so on and so forth. But he says, The Word became flesh. I I just don't want us to, in, in our academic age, to just read those words and just just. Okay, cool, yeah, Jesus came in the flesh. That's what we do at Christmas. Got it, got it, got it, good. Now think about this. What is John saying? He just spent 13 verses setting up for us what the Word became flesh and what that means and how weighty that is and how much that should mean in our hearts. He says the Word became flesh. Let me help you understand and help us all see what would be going on in John's mind as he is saying these words. Think about the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ and him being a man. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise his heel. So we see here that someone will come in the flesh, the seed of the woman, and he will take care of the curse. Then in Deuteronomy 18.18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Again, another prophecy concerning the coming of a man. In Isaiah 42.1, he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I mean, just think, just, just, just think about those words. God says, it's my servant whom I behold is my chosen, I've chosen in whom my soul delights. For God to delight in a man. He says, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice. I mean, think, think, think about that. Amen is going to bring justice to the nations. Now think about Old Testament prophecies concerning His divinity. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Micah 5 2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. As he just said, he said, The one coming from you, O little town of Bethlehem, is one who is of eternal age. What we see here in John is that the one from eternity past 
now walks among His people. The One of everlasting age now walks among His people. In the beginning, He says in verses 1 and 2, He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. This isn't just some dude that came to the earth. This isn't just some baby that we can go look in a manger and see cute Christmas lights about and just talk about haphazardly as if this just comes once a year and this is the time that we get together to talk about Jesus. No. This is God come in the flesh. If that was all it was, it would be worthy of our worship. If that's all it was. It would be worth celebrating every year. Yet the story stopped there. God came in the flesh. Oh my goodness. John 1.15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now if you remember from Luke, who was born first? Who was born first? John the Baptist was, right? But John the Baptist said he was before me. John's crazy. I mean, we know John's crazy. out eating locusts and all that nasty stuff. And but it says he stayed away from booze. Yeah, so they went confused. Right? He stayed away from alcohol. So they went, I think so that they went and confused his craziness with that of the effects of alcohol. Which I, I guess happens when you drink alcohol. But John stayed away from that. <laughs> he says he was before me. John, you're nuts. No, I'm not nuts. He was before me. John proclaimed the good news of the coming Savior. Because he wasn't claiming just that a baby was born in a manger. He was claiming that God, the God of the universe, came in the flesh. John says, I came to bear witness that indeed the one who walks among us is the one who has walked for eternity past. As we think about this word in the flesh, I want us to think about the power of the word. Not that he's just from eternity past, the Old Testament prophecies, but also the power of the word. The one who spoke the world into existence. This is the one who now walks in the flesh. The one who made flesh now walks in the flesh. The one who breathed life into the flesh now walks in the flesh. You think about the one who healed with his word. Think about Jesus. Think about this baby will one day command the flesh, just as he commanded the flesh prior to his incarnation. See that example when he commands the flesh in the raising of Lazarus. Rise! Knowing, I'm sure, maybe that one day he would rise from the tomb himself. Because he does not only command the flesh of others, but he commanded his own flesh. The Father would surely raise him from the grave. Think about these words in the middle of the song that we sing every year. Hark the herald angels sing, right? Written by Charles Wesley. It says this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. I just, just, 
just that line. Oh my. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Huh. How's that possible? That he would be pleased as man with men to dwell. How's that possible? I mean, just read the Old Testament. How is it possible that God would be with his people? And then veiled in the flesh that we'd see. And the last line of that phrase there, pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus are. Emmanuel. Jesus are God with us. Thousands of years of history. God showing us largely His distinction from us. Even in the midst of God showing His distinction from us, He still comes to us, but He doesn't come to us like He does here in Jesus. God with us. We beheld Him. Just a quick question. There's so many questions of application I think we could ask, but here's a question. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's a question. Are we so enamored with our own flesh that we miss the word come in the flesh? Kind of goes back to our question a few weeks ago about what do we hold in our hands? Maybe we don't treasure the gift of holding Christ in our hands because we have too many gifts that we've fashioned with our own hands and minds and hearts and we liken and love and adore those more than we would adore holding the Son come in the flesh. But I want us to see it. Do you see it? If, if we have if, if we are to have hope in the future inheritance of the Father, then we must place our faith in the past work of Christ in the flesh. See the grandness of the Word come in the flesh. Hope Himself came in the flesh. But what's wonderful is the story doesn't just stop there, right? He doesn't just invoke worship by Him coming in the flesh. But he's, what's John say? And He dwelt among us. He didn't just come in the flesh, say, here I am, see I told you I could do it. Toast, right? See you later. Adios, amigo. No, he says he dwelt among us. And I was to think, I was to think God's means of dwelling early, earlier in, in the history of the Israelites was via the tabernacle. And later the temple. We don't have time to jump into the temple. We'll just talk just briefly about the tabernacle. I would encourage you, go back and read. If you want to think more deeply and more thoroughly and more rightfully about the incarnation of the Son of God, go read the passages concerning the tabernacle. See, the old tabernacle was nothing short of a foreshadowing of Christ coming in the flesh. Just some ways in which it foreshadowed. I'll give you a, a quick list here. If you want to write down this, you could say the tabernacle was, and then I'm going to give you fill-ins kind of for that. The tabernacle was temporary. It was temporary. The tabernacle never stayed in one place forever. It was just there temporary. It moved around. The The tabernacle was used in the wilderness. That thought this past week really kind of overtook my mind at times. 
Christ come in the wilderness, the, the whole wilderness theme throughout all of the Old Testament, and, and to think of this place in which we live as, at least Christ came, was the wilderness, and that wherever Christ goes is the place of God. The kingdom of God goes where Christ goes. It's not tied to some geographical location. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. I mean, think about that. God's people knew God was with them through the tabernacle. It was God's dwelling place. And then think about God dwelling in His Son, Jesus. The tabernacle is where God met with men. To think that God met with His people in His Son, Jesus Christ. God met with men at the tabernacle. He met with men in Jesus. I mean, oh, the temporary foreshadowing, inefficiency, if you will, of the tabernacle as the ultimate meeting place with God. The tabernacle was the place where sacrifice was made. Sacrifice was made. There was a sacrifice made in Christ, wasn't there? The tabernacle was the place of worship. Ah, Christ, we worship. But now, John says, now, John says, he doesn't just, he doesn't dwell in the tabernacle. God is not limited to the place of the tabernacle, but now God dwells among his people. He walks to and from among his people, and wherever he goes, the kingdom of God goes. The Almighty Creator of the universe now walks with his people. The holy, perfect, and blameless one now dwells with his people. I hope, I pray that we do not take lightly the fact that God dwelt among His people. As a Christian, I want, I want to ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you again, why do we settle for hope in anything less? Why do we settle for hope in anything less than hope come in the flesh? This thought crossed my mind. Could it be that what we behold, what we grasp a hold to, what we place our hope in is a mixture of God and man, at least we think is a mixture, ultimately it's probably just ourselves, but a mixture of God and self. And I want us to think through this, okay? This is where we're going to go the rest of the time. As we work out our salvation one day at a time, moment by moment, we are faced with the opportunity to place our hope rightly or place our hope deficiently we can place our hope in something that is right and good or place our hope in something that is wrong and bad each day it's a war each day is a war that we are often blind to you go into each moment thinking I wonder where I'm placing my hope at at this point 
And so the question at hand, as we've talked about hope and where that should be placed at, and then we talked about what hope is, the expectation of something good and certain in the future. So what is our hope? Our hope is our, the inheritance of the Father. And I would say not so much hope in something from the Father, but the hope of the Father Himself to help us maybe narrow that in a little bit further. Because I think many times, most of us, all we hope for in heaven is the things that God might give us. When hope Himself is God Himself. But we've also discussed how hopelessness in man is the beginning to hopefulness in the Father. That if we are to f- place hope in God, it comes to the exclusion or comes by the exclusion of hope and anything else. We talked about how we have nothing to give that might make us right before God. We have nothing that we can do to secure that inheritance. And we've discussed last week how God's choosing of some to salvation is the beginning of hope for me and for you. Just as an adopted child chooses not his parents, so our hope, so is our hope for our inheritance. We're chosen to this, and by the nature of his glory, we cannot help but choose him in response. This week, I want to turn our attention to the journey of hope. What does it mean to journey in hope? How do we walk this journey toward hope? We've kind of laid the foundation of what God did. He came in the flesh. He dwelt among His people. But how do we day in and day out, moment by moment, seek our hope in the Father? How do we do we do that? How do we walk this day? So we've been ta- again, we've been talking all the stuff about hope and what is hope and ending with hopelessness here and hopefulness in God. How, but how do we... How do we do this day in and day out? The journey of walking with the Word who walked in the flesh. Again, I think this is much like it's the ongoing journey of salvation because one facet of salvation is the ongoing journey of hope. Hope, I think, is just a, a, a piece of that journeying towards heaven. There is a battle, again, for the placing of this hope. Each day is a struggle. So I would ask as we think about John, I don't think this is John's main point here necessarily, but it's certainly an implication of this, is this is what brings forth hope. So what must we do if we are to wage the war in rightfully placing hope in hope himself, Jesus Christ? And I think John has three encouragements for us. I think it would be a shame for us to spend multiple weeks now talking about rightful hope. Where do we place hope? How it's sin if we don't place hope there. It would be, I think, unfortunate for us to do that and not talk about how do we battle for this each day? How do we work through this each day? The first thing we do, one of three, is we should behold His glory. We should behold His glory.
Think about what John says here in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his people thought that was cool. Right? He says, we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. What does this refer to? What does it mean to behold his glory? I think there's multiple facets to this answer, but one I think that's revealed here in this text is his essential glory or his divine perfections, if you will. So if we how do we behold his glory? We see his divine perfections. Where do we see that at? He says, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is his essential glory. This is essentially who he is. He is essentially and most fundamentally, the Son from the Father. He is most essentially and most fundamentally one person in the Trinity. He is most fundamentally and essentially God. For us to behold His glory, we behold, we see His Godness. What does it mean? What is His divine perfections? What is it in it that he contains perfectly, infinitely, that makes him God, that makes him worthy of glory? I mean, the answers are almost limitless, I think, but just to name a few, his sinless life. When he says, we have seen his glory, we have seen, we have beheld his sinless life that gives him weightiness, that makes him worthy of glory. Maybe his unparalleled teaching, his supernatural birth, his death, his resurrections, plural. I think John even would delight in us thinking about the tabernacle again at this point. Let me read to you Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. He says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Like, oh. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. I mean, think about it. Oh, my gosh. Like, it's gone, okay, it's time for us to go, you know. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God made His dwelling place in the tabernacle. The people of God knew that their God was with them, when His glory shined among them, right? So the Israelites were wandering, trying to follow God. And God says, look, I will show you. I, I will dwell among you. And this is what it will look like when I dwell among you. And, and when I take up residence, then you take up residence here. When I take up into the sky to move on, then you move on with me. The people of God knew, listen, listen, listen. The people of God knew that they were the people of God because God's glory shined In the tabernacle. And John says, We have seen 
His glory. We have beheld His glory. At Christmas, I have to ask the question, have you seen His glory? If you've seen His glory, you will see the lack of glory in everything else that you're worshiping this Christmas. What else? What else? We've seen His glory. What else does John mean by we have seen His glory? I think we've seen His moral glory. Or his perfections, the perfections of the God-man. John says this, that he was full of grace and truth. The glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think speaking to his moral glory here, or a moral aspect of his glory. His perfections in the incarnation, full of grace and truth can't linger here long but think of the grace that we behold in the incarnation think of the grace displayed in the incarnation there embodied lying in the manger is God's grace to you do you see that when you look at the manger the baby wapped the baby wrapped in swaddling cloth right there is God's grace to you walking in the flesh think about this walking in the flesh as we Read through the Gospels. We see Jesus walking. There walking in the flesh is the payment for your sins. Think about Israelites raising up sheep to be slaughtered for their sacrifice, for a payment for their sins. That sheep is born. You're taking care of that sheep. You're feeding that sheep. You're watching that sheep grow. And one day you will slaughter that sheep as a payment for your sins. Here we see Jesus come God come in the flesh. His Son come in the flesh. We watch Him walk. We watch Him grow. We watch Him live knowing that one day this walking payment will become the payment for your, for your sin. For my sin. He is also grace to us because He is the fullness of God for you to see. He is grace. It is unmerited favor that God would reveal Himself to us so that we might see Him. And here, it's not just a cloud of God that we see, but we see the fullness of God, His deity displayed in Christ. But then think of the truth that we behold in the incarnation. Not just the grace, but the truth. There embodied, lying in the manger, is God's truth to you. It's God's truth to me, to us. That walking in the flesh, guys, is all truth. Is God's truth about justice. It's God's truth about His love. It's God's truth about all that is His character. But it's God's truth walking there in the flesh. Paul reminds us in Colossians, the fullness of Him, of God, was pleased to dwell in His Son. So Christian, if we are, if we are on this journey of hope, we must first behold His glory. What does the glory of Jesus, the Jesus you behold, look like? Just ask that question for a second. What makes Jesus weighty in your heart?
Have you seen his glory? Where have you seen it? How are you defining his glory? I'm afraid that many of us, how we might define his glory is by some experience in your life or some emotional time. Well, I know God is weighty because he did this over here. He did that over there. Certainly, I'm sure he did those things. But we have this. We have this. We have the Word of God here. I mean, yeah, that's not Jesus, but we have His words. We have His, what He wanted to say to us. How He wanted to describe His glory is, is written here. The Bible says that the Word came in the flesh, and now we have the Word written down. Maybe the beholding of our Savior is frail because we're beholding ourselves too much. I just, just say to you, church, this. I would say, say this. The more, just as a testimony, I, just the more you know God, the more weighty He is, the more worthy of glory He is. And it's amazing how the things in this life tend to, tend to be put in much better perspective when God's given the weightiness that He deserves. You know, even, even working through a tough situation last night, like, knowing that God is glorious and that He is worthy of my worship just puts everything in perspective. It does. Let me help us. Let me help us, okay? I want to help us with the weightiness of God, that He should capture our glory. And I want to convince you, just uh, hopefully maybe with just these couple passages, that you can do that in here. Colossians 1, 15-23. Surprise, surprise. Colossians 1, 15-23 says, He... Guys, listen, this is the weightiness of our Savior. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm going to fly through this. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Worthy of weightiness, yet. He is glorious, yet. And He is before all things. If that wasn't enough, He's before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If that was the only statement. If that was the only statement. Verse 19. If that was the only statement. He would be worthy of glory. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him... Not only did he dwell, but through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And why do we place so much glory on anything else when these are the words and the person that they describe that we might place our glory on? Not place our glory, but we might recognize glory on. And you, 
And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You who would not choose God on your own. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's not enough. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Let's go to the Old Testament. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like the root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living stricken from the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the glory that we behold. That's what John says. We have seen his glory. We have seen this. And that's just two passages. We have seen this. When you go to Christmas and you see the baby in the manger, do you see this? So we, how do we journey towards hope? How do we behold his glory grow in knowing what makes him glorious second receive his truth and grace his truth and grace back to 16 John 1 he says for from him his fullness, or sorry, for, for from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. The idea here is that out of his divine fullness, 
from his divine fullness, out of his divine fullness, proceeding from his divine fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What is it that we've received? Life, peace, breath, love, joy, mercy, patience, painful blessings, and blessings that are easily enjoyed. That was the best way I could describe God's blessing of sorrows to you and God's blessing of that which we enjoy more easily. All of those being grace to you and to me. This is from His fullness. We have, I mean, it's a sermon. I could just preach verse 16. It would, it would be fun. That'd be fun. Maybe another day. Verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this for a few moments. I think John is drawing up a contrasting picture here for us. This is a valuable picture for us to see when we think about Christmas. The law was truth, but only as far as it went. So let's think about this for a second. The law was truth, but it wasn't all of the truth. No mere words could contain fully the truth that is God. Now God revealed enough truth for that time and for His purpose. But the law was truth, but only in as far as it went. It displayed, however limited, it displayed God's righteousness demanded. The law displayed many of God's attributes but not all of them, and at least certainly not to their fullest. And the law demanded obedience, perfect obedience. Now, I want us to see the law. The law is good if used rightly. That's what Timothy talks about, what Paul talks about to Timothy. The law is good. We should not throw the law away. And I, and I want to do a grace law discussion at this point as much as I would love to but he says that the law was given through Moses also notice here that that the law was given through Moses because it wasn't Moses's law to give God gave the law through Moses but then notice the difference he doesn't say but grace and truth was given through Jesus Christ no it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ Jesus Christ was the grace and truth that was given and it was His grace and truth to give. And grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals God's truth. Jesus reveals God's grace. It says the fullness of God, the fullness of God's truth, the fullness of God's grace was in Christ. And the thing I want us to see here that's I think really important for us is to see that these two things, truth and grace, are joined together and are inseparable. Our world and our hearts as well want to separate the two. Many of us love God's grace, but we could often do without His truth. And some of us love God's truth and could do without His grace, as though we think we could. Do you hear me? Many of us think we could do God's grace, but we could do without His truth. Question. How are you receiving this inseparable pair? Do you find yourself desiring one over the other? 
I'm probably one of the ones that fall into the latter category of I love God's truth and think as though I could often do without His grace. Do you find yourself expressing one over the other? Because that's probably the one you adore more than the other. You know, I, I, I wrote this down. I said it's the one that you're expressing more is probably the Jesus that you favor more, that you enjoy more. But it doesn't say that Jesus is grace on the day that you need him to be grace and that Jesus is truth on the day that you need Jesus to be truth and that you just pick your flavor of the moment. It says that Jesus is grace and truth. He is always grace. He is always truth. And he is the fullest extent of truth and the fullest extent of grace embodied in that person. If we are to have hope in the future inheritance, we must receive his grace and his truth. You need to understand that it's all or nothing. You don't get God's grace without His truth. I mean, and, and here's the deal. We, we, you need to think beyond just gospel for initial salvation, gospel for justification. You need to think gospel for sanctification. The gospel in Jesus Christ is grace and truth. As you live out the gospel every single day, you need grace and truth. Grace and truth truth. It's not one or the other. But I want you to understand too, the beautiful thing is, is that we don't just get God's truth without His grace. God could have just given us His truth. He said, here's the truth about your depravity, here's the truth about your sinfulness. Doesn't that stink? We get His grace too. And I love how John says we have received grace upon grace. And I think it's King Kaleidoscope. I think it says we've received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And a hundred more times. Grace upon grace. John spared us and stayed at grace upon grace. Oh, but he could have continued, right? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So not only have we opportunity this Christmas to behold His glory, but we also have the necessity to receive His truth and grace, to seek His truth and grace. All of this for what purpose? I would argue that that we might ultimately know the Father. If hope is only found in the Father, then we must know the Father in order to place our hope in in the Father. Let me say that again. If hope is only found in the Father, then we must know the Father in order to place our hope in the Father. I would say that to know the Father results in nothing but placing our hope in the Father. That's the beauty of the, of the situation. Is that as we place hope, as we know the Father, we know the worthiness that He has of placing our hope in Him. I think this is ultimately what Jesus did for us on Christmas Day. He began the journey of hope for us. He began the era in which God's people could know the one in which they could place their hope. But not just know of Him, 
that they would truly know Him. And so know the Father. Know the Father. How do I journey this journey of hope? How do I place hope in the right things? You should know, you should get to know the one in whom is worthy of placing your hope. I mean, I know we know, I know, we know this, but like, we do it. Know the Father. We just talked about receiving grace and truth. Grace in the giving of the Son. Truth of God in the life of the Son. And we know truth by knowing the Son, and we know the Son by knowing the Word of God. As we know the Son of God through the Word of God, we will know the Father God. Let me say that again. As we know the Son of God through the Word of God, we will know the Father God. The kind of knowing, though, that we are talking about is the knowing of a Father, not just the knowing of an acquaintance. We are talking about the kind of knowing that necessarily leads to adoration and worship. And I hope you see how some of these pieces start to begin to fit together. You see, education precedes adoration. Education precedes adoration. You cannot adore what you do not know with the mind, and you cannot know it truly until you adore it with the heart. Let me say that again. Education precedes adoration. You cannot adore what you do not know with the mind, and you cannot know it truly until you adore it with the heart. So God, what's He do? He reveals Himself to us in His Son and writes it down for us to read and believe today. That we would know the Father, and that knowing of the Father leads to hope in the Father. How can you hope in something that you do not know? See, some of us settled for like felt board Jesus. Right? There's more to the Father than felt board Jesus. Felt board Jesus was good for a time. Okay? A four-year-old. The knowing here is knowing that necessarily results in worship, but it's also a knowing that is preceded by education. He came to make him known. He says in verse 18, he has made him known. How do we worship the Father? By knowing him in the Son. Verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has made him known. No one has ever seen the Father. Later this week, go read Exodus 33. Actually, I'll just read it for you now. Why not? Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Think about that in light of what we talked about last week. Verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Wow. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then read 2 Corinthians 4, 6 with me. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John says, John says, That which Moses had to be hidden from, we have seen. We have beheld His glory. In the face of Jesus Christ. So what is it that you struggle to place hope in each day? Huh? What is it that, that you war with? I will place hope here, I'll place hope here. I mean, our hope's always placed somewhere. The lie is that I either place it in God or it's just not, it's just non-existent. No, it's there. Your hope is placed somewhere. Even if you feel like you have no hope, it's because the thing at which you want to hope in isn't providing it for you. So you're still seeking to place your hope in something. It's just it's letting you down. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, maybe if I'm honest with myself, you know you should place your hope in God, but that just doesn't seem appealing. Maybe hope in your own ability to control the circumstances around you just seems more likely. I mean, I can't see God. He's not, he's not really been that great in my life. Or maybe hope in your own ability to secure your future with the Father just seems more within grasp. I mean, I've been doing it on my own, it seems like, all along. How many of us, when challenged in our journey, happily receive correction and exhortation? Could it be that we do not receive it happily because that which we are being challenged on is that which we place our hope in? I just gave you a, some examples of where could we be placing our hope in. And we're bring us back and kind of help us wrap all this up. We started this journey with defining hope. The expectation of some certain good to happen in the future. And, and I, just, I just hope we see the little things that we, the frail things that we settle to place our hope in compared to the good that awaits us in Jesus Christ. That is even ours to some measure here. But we miss this hopefulness in God for this certain inheritance because we place so much hopefulness in our own ability, our own righteousness, or the things of this earth. We settle for hope that is so uncertain. It's like many of us put so much energy into these things that we place our hope in. Our kids, our kids' sports, our kids' behavior, our jobs. But all this is so uncertain. Why do we settle for something so frail and so temporary? 
I mean, hopefulness in man is just foolish. We see that. It's just foolish. It didn't make any sense. I think the key to hopefulness in God rests ultimately in beholding His glory. Would you think with me for just a few seconds? There is something very special about Adam and Eve beholding the glory of God in the garden, wasn't there? That they could see Him, that they walked with Him. There is something unique about Moses beholding a glimpse of God's glory on the mountain. There's something very radical about God's glory being seen in the cloud over the tabernacle. And yet there is something life-changing about beholding the glory of the Son. To behold His glory is to see His weightiness. To ascribe weightiness to Him. As you describe weightiness, ascribe weightiness to God then the weightiness of everything else goes it may not it goes down at least in comparison but i think it's what we do okay back to the hand visual in one hand sits your weightiness your abilities what you do what you ascribe weightiness to it sits here and in the other hand is the weightiness of God. And what happens is each moment by moment, there's this battle to which one's going to win. The weightiness of me, the weightiness of my ability, the weightiness of that which I value, or the weightiness of God, the glory of God. And the one that wins out is the one that we place our hope in. Now let me be very clear, only a depraved mind debates one's own glory with that of the Father's glory. Only a crazy person might think that for a moment that his weightiness could possibly compare to the weightiness of the Almighty God. If we are to place our hope in the certain future inheritance we have in the Father, we must behold His Glory. Because we are ascribed worth because we're in Christ and we're made in the image of God. He's ascribed worth because He is God. Only His glory is weighty enough. Each day is one day further in this journey toward the realization of hope, right? We're moving one day closer. Tomorrow, today's what, the 21st? Is that right? Tomorrow will be the 22nd, the 23rd. Each day is just a day closer to hope being in front of us. As we journey, we behold Him, we worship Him, we experience His grace and receive His truth. All of this ultimately so that we might know the Father. That we would know the Father, the one whom our hope is placed. The beauty of this is that as we let go of of hope elsewhere to be placed in hope in the Father, we grow in beholding the Father. And the more we grow in knowing Him, the easier it gets to place our hope in Him. 
What a marvelous design. I want to read to you one last quote from A.W. Pink on his exposition of John 1. He says this, In His marvelous stoop we behold His glory. Greatness is never so glorious as when it takes the place of lowliness. Power is never so attractive as when it is placed at the disposal of others. Might is never so triumphant as when it sets aside its own prerogatives. Sovereignty is never so winsome as when it is seen in the place of service. Yes, we behold His glory, the glory of an infinite condescension, the glory of a matchless grace, the glory of a fathomless love. So I pray, I pray, so much we've talked about over the past few weeks. I pray that maybe you'd even start some new traditions this year. Maybe along with the Christmas story, you might teach your family the glory that, that, that you've beheld, that you're seeking to behold, that you would Show them the words of our Savior and the, what makes Him weighty. That which is worthy of our hope. And I pray that this would not just be a seasonal thing. That as 2015 comes rushing upon us like a mighty rushing storm, that, that we would help our families know the one who controls the storm. The one who makes January 1st, 2015 possible is the one whom we celebrate on Christmas. And the one that will see us through 2015 is the one who's already written the history that will be 2015. That's who we place our hope in. The one who secured our salvation in Jesus Christ. If you've not placed your hope ultimately in Jesus Christ. I pray, pray that you would do that this morning. And that begins with ceasing hopelessness and repenting of hopefulness in your ability to be right with God. You have no ability. We have no ability to be right with God apart from Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And we place our faith in His work on the cross to make us right with the Father. And it begins with repenting of our sins. I pray that you would do that today. And the last thing, just church, church family, I pray that you lead your families this Christmas. Lead them. Men, lead your families this Christmas. Lead them particularly to know the gospel of Christmas. Not our world's gospel of Christmas. They have good news that they think is Christmas, Right? Stockings full of joy, stockings full of this and that, trees full of this and that. You know, as I was looking at my sad Christmas tree, I have there's four different strands of lights on there. It's a pre-lit tree, and there's two out of four strands that are gone, so it, it's kind of striped. I have lights, blank, lights, blank, star, and the star is lit. But I thought, but I thought, 
how true is this of the hope in our world? It's not complete. It's not ultimate. It's here one day, gone the next. This strand was working this day, it's gone the next. I remember sitting on the couch, and all of a sudden these lights started getting like, like they get real bright, and then they'd, then they'd go back to normal. And I'm like, what is that going on in my eyes? Like, I've got something in my eye. And then all of a sudden they get real bright, and then they die. And I just thought, how much of our hope looks the same? We place hope in something other than God, and, and for a while it just gets bright and bright and bright, and then all of a sudden it's gone. And we feel hopeless. We feel despair. We lack in joy. And then all of a sudden something else starts to get brighter and brighter and brighter, and our hope is good, and everything is glorious, and then boom, it's gone. But that's the glory of a God who doesn't change. He doesn't get bright one second and then dies the next. He is worthy of your hope. I want to pray for us. and We've still got songs to sing. So uh, we're going to worship this one whose glory we behold. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness this morning. Father, I pray that our Christmas would change because we're beholding your glory more, more tightly, more closely, more thoroughly than the glory of other things that which battle for a seat on our hearts' hands. Father, I pray that as a good king, that those things fighting for glory and a seat on the throne of our hearts. Father, I pray like a good king that you would guard the walls, that you would throw them out of our hearts, that you would crucify them in our lives and throw them, get them out of the city that is our hearts. That's the king that came 2,000 years ago. He came not to war at least initially for the physical things around us, we came to war for our hearts. Father, be a good king as we know you are. Rid our hearts of the intruders. Father, for only you are weighty enough to sit upon that which we worship in our hearts. Father, be with us as we come and stand amazed at your throne. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?